There are a number of developments in person and family-centered care worth paying attention to, and among them is the growing opportunity to collaborate with improvement scientists on the very research designed to impact patient experience. No longer just an idea, the ways in which this partnership is already being explored and what makes it possible was the focus of a panel at the 19th Annual Scientific Symposium on Improving the Quality and Value of Healthcare. This was held on December 9, 2013 in Orlando, Florida, alongside the 25th Annual IHI National Forum on Quality Improvement in Healthcare. I'm Madge Kaplan. I'm IHI's Director of Communications, and I host and produce WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. This is offered bi-weekly and also for your later listening and convenience via IHI.org and on iTunes. I had the good fortune of moderating the Scientific Symposium panel in Orlando and having it recorded so we can bring it to you as this special edition WIHI podcast. IHI senior scientist Gareth Perry conceived of the patient experience meets improvement science discussion as part of the day-long symposium, and he kicked things off. The panelists are Christian Farman, Libby Hoy, and Peter Margolis. I hope you find this WIHI podcast interesting and engaging. What we're going to talk about now, we're going to have a, a, um, a session. It's a one-hour session. We're going to talk about, it's more of a discussion uh, um, session, um, and it's about where improvement research meets a patient experience and thinking about um, whether applying the science of improvement might be able to accelerate um, patient-centered outcomes. And I'm going to hand over um, to Madge to run this session. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Madge Kaplan, and I'm IHI's Director of Communications. I also host and produce WIHI. Uh, Perhaps some of you have tuned into that. And um, it's a really wonderful pleasure for me to be part of this discussion today, and I thank the entire team for uh, asking me to help moderate uh, today's discussion. What we're going to do in this next hour could be a conference unto itself. Um, There is so much activity. Uh, The issue is rich around collaboration between improvement science and patients and families uh, and all the work that's going on there. So we have a bit of an ambitious agenda here to at least set the table with a bunch of ideas over the next hour, and we hope this is the first of many discussions. It's clear that uh, many funders are increasingly interested in um, when folks are applying for support for various improvement projects and research design. More and more questions are being asked about the engagement with patients and families. I think everyone would agree that's probably a pretty good thing. Um, I'm very interested in um, the slides and the work that Kathleen Stevens just shared, and the question I was on my mind is uh, to what degree will patients and families also uh, have a role, uh, particularly in setting priorities and being part of that conversation. I'm sure there will be opportunities, and that may be something um, that could be discussed further. I see Kathleen nodding over there. Um, I also want to say that I... um, I do feel that um, 
there are many layers and levels to this discussion. There's operational, there's cultural issues, there's the issues themselves, what are the questions, what are the concerns. So hence my sense that this could be um, a, a day unto itself. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to introduce briefly each of our speakers. They have longer bios in your program materials. These will just be uh, quick summaries. Each will speak uh, for about uh, eight to ten minutes, and then we'll have a moderated discussion and hopefully some time for questions as well. So immediately to my right, I want to welcome back to the forum Christian Farman. This year, uh, Christian is a co-chair, so he helped with the planning as well. Uh, Christian's bio tells a bit of his story, and he's going to do an even more condensed version of that in his remarks. I'll just say that he once worked for Saab Avatronics in Sweden, and because of his need for regular dialysis, he discovered he could play a role changing patient care. So he's now a registered nurse uh, at a hospital in Sweden uh, that focuses on ear, nose, and, well, ear and nurse in the ear, nose, and throat clinic. Welcome, Christian. To Christian's right is Libby Hoy, founder and chief executive officer, patient and family-centered care partners. As the mother of three boys living with chronic illness, Libby Hoy has years of experience navigating the healthcare system from the perspective of a patient and caregiver. She's been sharing that experience with healthcare organizations that are seeking to evaluate, initiate, and sustain patient and family-centered care programs in Southern California for the last 15 years. Welcome, Libby. And to Libby's right is Peter Margolis. Peter Margolis is Professor of Pediatrics and Director of Research at the James M. Anderson Center for Health System Excellence at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. His work encompasses the application and study of quality improvement methods in a broad range of areas that include primary and subspecialty care, communities, and public health settings. Dr. Margolis is Principal Investigator of an NIH Roadmap Transformative Research Grant on Redesigning Systems for Chronic Illness Care. Welcome, Peter. All right, so let's uh, turn it over now uh, to Christian. Um, if you have questions, thoughts that occur to you um, about inclusion, about priorities, about what questions we should be asking, about pathways for a collaboration like this today and how that can continue, jot them down, uh, what, even if we don't get to all the questions at the end of the hour, perhaps that um, you'll be able to um, speak to some folks as we go along through the rest of the day. So Christian, over to you. Yeah, thank you. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I'm here today to give you an example of what we have done back in Sweden uh, for the patients in uh, in-center dialysis clinic. And um, um, I was, um, uh, after, after five years with a fully function kidney, uh, I uh, went back to dialysis in 2005, and I met um, a nurse at this um, uh, dialysis unit, and we pretty much uh, changed the paradigm together on this in-center dialysis unit. Uh, we sort of created a new paradigm and introduced, introduced a new um, um, approach to the patient, to see the patient as a uh, kind of 
person in, uh, in front of the um, disease and we, de we developed a new learning model uh, and um, we also looked at the patient as a um, 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 equal uh, partner and work with a partnership together and um, uh, this amazing nurse Brittany Bank she, she was really really uh, good because she uh, dared to think outside the box when I went to the clinic at the time and um, for you to know what uh, I, I will give you some sen some um, um, idea of how it is to be a dialysis patient. So it's, first it's um, life supporting treatment and it takes four or five hours a day uh, for three, uh, three times a week. Uh, and it's uh, lots of fluid restrictions and, uh, and also food restrictions and you have to be really, really, you're really stuck in the moment, so to speak. So I'm further here. Uh, so when I met Britt Marie at this uh, unit uh, back in Sweden, I uh, was a pretty demanding patient because I asked her to help me to manage my own dialysis. And I also um, knew that I uh, needed an optimal individual dialysis because I had studied and researched a lot during the five years since my first uh, kidney, since I received my first kidney. So uh, I, I knew that I needed more than three times a week to have a normal life, uh, and that was really crucial for me. So um, I also asked her to be fully involved in, in, my, in my treatment. And um, we started with the basic things, the, the basic hygiene routines, and also um, I needed structure and order, so to speak. And we did the priming of the machine and uh, put the horses on and stuff like that. So that was the easy part for me as a technician from the Swedish uh, aerospace industry. Yeah, And we proceeded with the medications and... Uh, and uh, also um, in, uh, injections and uh, syringes, learning to do that uh, in a proper manner, so to speak. And also uh, good documentation, but I was really used to that in the aerospace industry because everything is documented properly there. So that was a piece of cake. So we uh, proceed and uh, towards another step to independence. and. Uh, what we did here was to, to this, uh, a lot of people in the healthcare industry says like this is dangerous, he's going to kill himself because learning to, to handle the access to your bloodstream is very dangerous and they, th uh, they also talked about infections and stuff like that. So uh, she listened to me and I said why don't we do like we're doing in the, in the Air Force industry, uh, like we're doing things on dummies first and then go to real stuff. So we, so we just taped it up here uh, the CV catheter a, a, a dummy beside the real one and I practiced on it for, for about four hours and then I go from there to the real one and that's an example to how, the, how important the, the, the communication is between the nurses or the staff and the, and the patient and then after four weeks I became pretty independent and this, is, this was my luckiest day in my life because you know uh, dialysis treatment is really, really hard for you, and um, 
it's to, to gain freedom, independence, and and a normal life uh, despite heavy disease. That's really really important for all of us who's working in the in the healthcare industry to to help the patients with. Yeah. So the outcomes uh, uh, of person-centered care or um, you can call it uh, patient-centered care, person-centered care, or patient involvement. You can call it whatever. It's obvious. For me, uh, of course, it was an improved dialysis quality. It was, uh, I became more healthy, and I also had less medications and less infections and stuff like that. But the most important thing is the win-win situation for me as a patient, because going from being totally uh, dependent to be independent and gaining freedom again, it was amazing. And also uh, the professionals and uh, my family, uh, the healthcare system and the society uh, is a winner here. So it's a win-win situation. And uh, here, this slide uh, speaks for itself because if we can adapt to person-centered care, or if we can, uh, if we can be more, so to speak, look at the patient or the person in front of the disease, we can achieve uh, big things in the healthcare. So, with this slide, I'm going to end my speak here. So, thank you very much. Thanks so much, uh, Christian. All right, well, that sets things up very nicely. I think uh, for Libby, one theme that I hear here, of course, is um, all the strengths and knowledge and skills that patients bring to solving a lot of problems. And I think we'll, we'll be hearing more about that with everyone's remarks. So Libby, go ahead, thanks. Hi, I just want to thank you so much for allowing me to, to participate today in this panel. Um, is that louder? How about that? Better? Good. Excellent. Um, so for, I, I have to start with introducing you to my family. These are my three boys, Stephen, Nicholas, and JT. And um, all three boys live with mitochondrial disease. And together we are Team Hoy. Um, my husband is the captain of the team and taking the picture, which is why he's not in it. But um, we really uh, learned early on in the boys' care that... First of all, we were going to be relying on health care for their lives and, and to care for them. But one of the early lessons that we learned was the value of partnering with our care providers. And um, if we could bring our experiences in living with the, the disease um, to the partnership and couple that with the expertise of our physicians and our medical staff, then together we designed care plans that really um, not only were effective in the outcome, but also respected and honored our family's priorities um, and our family's vision for where the boys could could be. And that was really important and, and at times difficult for some of our healthcare providers to buy in that the vision that we had for the boys. Um, unfortunately, those providers got cut from the team. But um, it was really important, and we saw that value as the boys grew um, and became empowered patients of their own to partner and bring, again, their experiences of disease together with the expertise of the healthcare providers. Um, these are, uh-oh, I'm missing one. There he is. <laughs> oh, always a little late, Nick. Um, 
The, the young man playing rugby over there, I'm proud to say, is here in the front row with us today. Yay! <laughs> um, Stephen play- <laughs> It's, this, this is it. This is the outcomes. Um, these are the outcomes. Stephen plays rugby despite having a spinal fusion from T3 to T12, and yes, his orthopedist approved. Um, in addition to having some digestive issues, Nicholas, who uh, played for the junior national team in water polo, was fed through a G-tube until he was 14. The point is that they just don't really see themselves as stopping there, that mitochondrial disease is a part of who they are, but it's not the most interesting part. Nicholas plays water polo despite having 60% lung function, which I think is pretty impressive. Um, And down on the bottom is JT. He's now 16 years old and the youngest member of the Long Beach Search and Rescue Team. He does uh, incredible training and gives thousands of hours over the course of a year back to our community. So you can see that, again, mitochondrial disease fits into who they are, but it's not determining their lives. It's not determining their outcomes. Um, And that's really important, uh, again, the value of partnership. So we've taken, I've taken the value of partnership that I learned within the care relationship and joined the parent advisory board at Miller Children's Hospital initially. That was a long time ago. Um, and I learned about the value of patient and family perspective in improvement work. And it's a really important point that we bring a different perspective. Um, it's not a sense of entitlement. It's not me coming to you and saying, we need this, we need that. Right? It's, it's allowing us the opportunity to inform the work that you're doing to improve care and recognizing that we have a unique um, perspective on the way that things work in healthcare. I'll remember sitting on a patient flow um, committee. We were looking at the patient flow through the outpatient surgery center, and they had this beautiful graphic up on the wall, and I said, that's how you think we flow. (laughs) Our experience is not anything close to that diagram. If we're not a part of that process, we don't have that opportunity to inform that improvement, then you're still trying to improve things that may or may not be relevant to the patient experience. Um, This is a definition that collaboratively we came up with last year under uh, Martha Hayward's leadership with um, a very diverse group of patient family advisors that came here to the forum. And I I thank the, the IHI for convening us every year because we continue to grow in learning from one another and learning our contributions and how we can fit into this improvement model. Um... We are here to collaborate. We are here to bring authenticity to the work. And I think that's a really important point, that um, we're here about the work and how it affects patients and families. And that kind of um, genuine integration is really our, our goal. So I had an interesting experience about um, four or five years ago where I had an opportunity to meet one of the leading researchers in mitochondrial dysfunction. And we met for coffee for a couple of hours. And I I kept thinking, I don't get it. I don't get What is he studying? You know, he's talking to me about uh, the function of the mitochondria, which is really, really important, but we were missing on all I wanted to know was tell me how we can improve lung function because that's our biggest concern. That's how, how do I improve their lifestyle? So he would tell me something about the respiratory chain and I thought, oh good, now we're getting to it. Apparently not. (laughs) 
so it was a challenge for me to understand um, as a patient and family member how I could partner with the research community. And uh, recently I've had the opportunity to join a research team at Children's Hospital of Los Angeles. And it's really opened my eyes to, again, the relevancy and authenticity that, that we can bring to the research community as well. Um, and that's pretty much what's brought me here today. Thanks, Libby. I think uh, this theme also of um, becoming almost embedded so that you're already part of a whole process and um, therefore perhaps starting to close the gap between um, what the the improvement work might be in an organization and tapping into patients and families because they're already there um, is an important one. I also want to say that Libby, Hoy, Martha, how many patient family advisors are here at the forum this year? 37 patient family advisors, those who would identify as such and are, are part of a network. There's a lot of overlapping roles that people are playing here uh, in that capacity, including uh, Christian here as well. So again, I think we're slowly trying to uh, build that greater visibility, uh, and uh, hopefully you'll have opportunities uh, to have some of that engagement while you're at the symposium and through your time at the forum. All right, I want to next turn to Peter Margolis. Uh, fascinating work going on uh, under his auspices and uh, it's really uh, gets right down into uh, um, the almost uh, sort of laboratory uh, with all kinds of uh, patient and citizen uh, scientists it seems to me um, as a result of the medical issues they're dealing with. Go ahead Peter. Okay, thank you and um, is is this working? Can you hear me? Yeah. A little louder? Okay, well, um, first, it's, uh, it's exciting and humbling to get to be uh, with the rest, with you all today. It's exciting to be part of this. And uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about how, um, how, as a clinician and researcher, we're trying to get to this idea from the other side of the exam table. Um, And so the story is a little bit different. In 2007, uh, with the support from the American Board of Pediatrics, uh, the pediatric gastroenterology community organized a collaborative network that's called the Improved Care Now Network to improve the health and lives of kids with Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. And we designed the network as a pilot for the board's maintenance of certification program, a program that focused on large-scale data sharing, effective use of technology and training, Uh, in quality improvement. And over the last six years, the care centers have collectively uh, increased the rate of remission for kids with the disease from around 50 to 77 percent. And today, under the leadership of Dick Coletti from the University of Vermont and Wallace Crandall at uh, Nationwide Children's Hospital and other gastroenterologists, the network has grown to 59 care centers, 17,000 patients. It's about 35 percent of kids in the country with the disease. But at its inception, Improved Care Now uh, involved only clinicians, and we recognized uh, about four years ago that uh, uh, providing a way for patients and families to get more involved for more effective use of technology and a better learning system that we might be able to uh, accelerate the production of new knowledge and achieve a bigger impact on health outcomes. So we began to think about how to extend the breakthrough series model of collaborative learning by broadening the participants in the network. 
we're all familiar with networks as clinicians. We're familiar the networks for clinical research have been central to accelerating discovery. The Children's Oncology Group is probably the foremost example. Networks of patients have served as potent advocates for more effective research management and greater investment in research. And clinical improvement networks use quality improvement science to change care and achieve better outcomes. But these networks actually operate somewhat independently, separating the knowledge and skills and capacity from each group. With support from the care centers and the NIH transformative research grant, we began to work on altering the network so that patients and families could work with clinicians and researchers in every aspect of the learning system and create what we call collaborative chronic care or C3N network. And the C3N framework is an example of what's now uh, of an economic or organizational model that is known as network-based production. Network-based production is the basis for Wikipedia, for Linux, for TripAdvisor, and in science, the kind of collaboration that resulted in sequencing the human genome in advance of uh, anticipated um, uh, the anticipated completion. It, this idea of co- cooperation and collaboration isn't new. We've humans have cooperated since we hunted in groups as cavemen. Um, and uh, we've most of us have participated on the PTA, but cooperation at the massive scale is possible um, because of advances in technology over the last 25 years, the Internet, uh, the personal computer, that make it possible to, to work together at a distance. The Breakthrough Series was developed in 1994. Google was founded in 1998. Um, and network-based production models... Um, treat contribution and generosity as an actual resource that you can design around. So we think that this way of working together can have a significant impact on healthcare. In the in the improved care now, uh, we've brought together teams of patients and families and clinicians and researchers and innovators to work together on all aspects of designing new uh, delivery systems, spawning innovations, doing research. The idea is to put this all together in a single system. My colleagues, Michael Said and Lisa Opapari, have written that in a network-based production learning health system, engagement is the extent to which an individual takes play- part in the production of information and knowledge and know-how. And it's not just about your own health, but the health of your of the community, and in this way, uh, uh, engagement applies to not only patients and families but clinicians and researchers. So, what does network-based production look like? How, how many of you have ever posted a note on uh, a review on TripAdvisor or liked a restaurant that you liked, went to, or uh, participated in Wikipedia making a comment? Okay. A lot. And how many of you have ever posted your latest improvement tool on a website that everybody else in this in the room could use? Only fewer. <laughs> Mostly. <laughs> so um, I want to show you an example. A team of volunteers in the in the network created a, a website that looks a lot like Pinterest, where patients and families and uh, clinicians could post videos of. Um, uh, that they th- thought might be useful to others. Um, the f- I have a couple of videos that I'd like to show you. The first is an example of sharing know-how. It's a video that was produced by uh, a nine-year-old named Zach Wall. Zach has Crohn's disease, and he uses enteral feeds to control his disease. Enteral feedings are the first-line therapy for uh, IBD in Europe, but they're not used very much in the United States because despite significant evidence that the approach is equivalent to immunosuppressive therapy that is 
much riskier and much more costly. The problem is the kids need to learn how to put an NG tube uh, down every night so they can do their feeds, and it's kind of frightening. So I want to just, if you can just play the first video of Zach's uh, demonstration. Hello, everybody, and YouTube. I would like to show you, well, I have Crohn's disease, as you know from my first part. Ugh. But I've upgraded my my two feet so that I can actually do it myself every single night now. And, well, I want to show you. So, if you didn't see my first part, go see it or just watch right here. I'll show you how you do most of the stuff. So this is the nasal gastric tube. Am I saying that right? <laughs> nasal gastric tube and nasal gastric tube. Yeah, now I said it right. So this is the goop that you have to put a lot of it on. <coughs> what is that goop actually called? Dad? Step three. Hold the tube near your nose so you get the smell of it. And then you'll get relaxed and you put it down. For me, I have to go to the second black dot. So, now we tape it to my face. Hello, so, everybody. Oh, you can... <laughs> Thank you. So uh, uh, many physicians don't know how to teach a nine-year-old how to put down their own NG tube. Um, and uh, now many of the physicians in the network are using Zach so that he can teach, introduce this idea to other kids like him. Um, he's a kid that I'd like to have for my own uh, son. So let me um, show a second example. This is uh, from a patient who's been working on a research team as a collaborator. My colleagues Ian Eslick, Heather, a Heather Kaplan, uh, Shazad Saeed, and Jeremy Adler, who's here today, are creating what they call a personal learning system that allows patients to track data over time and design personalized experiments with their doctors. And so this is a video um, from Alex Joffrey that describes his own experience um, designing and running his own experiment with his doctor. My name is Alex Jeffrey. I have Crohn's disease. I was diagnosed at age 9 and now 17 and a senior at Milford High School. I am thankful to be a part of Improved Care now. I used PLS after my ileostomy reversal surgery. My doctor and I wanted to reintroduce foods into my system and see how those foods would react. Uh, PLS made it very easy to interact with my doctor. Uh, he and I, using PLS, we could talk about how I was feeling very easily because uh, PLS uses a system of tracking, uh, which is live time data and he would know exactly when I was feeling and how I was feeling at that exact time. You interacted with the system by entering your data in by cell phone text messages, so they would send you a survey via text message, and then I would respond to the text message. So when I would try a different food, they would track how many times I went that day to see if it escalated every time I ate a new thing. 
or if it, I was having more tummy cramps or more pain from that food, it would track that as well. When it comes to PLS and appointments, I would come into my appointments and he would have all my data, so we would just pull it up on his computer and we would look at it together and say, oh, there's a spike, I guess that's not something that we should try again, or oh, you think you had problems but you didn't buy the data, so maybe let's try that food again. So I think that it definitely increases your communication with your doctor and the patient and uh, doctor relationship is definitely better. Thanks. So I apologize for the quality of the videos. Uh, uh, if you go to our website, you can look at them uh, in a cleaner version. So um, I'll just stop there. I, the basic idea is that we think that this model, this collaborative chronic care research model, can make research improving care and impacting outcomes easier, hopefully faster, cheaper, and better by engaging everybody in the healthcare system and working together and offering what they can uh, to, uh, the, to uh, the goal of improving health outcomes. Thank you, Peter. Okay, so we're going to have um, some minutes of a discussion that I'll moderate from up here, and then we'll open it up for your questions and comments before the hour is up. So, um, I th Peter, maybe I'll start with you. Um, uh, I don't know what the infrastructure or the setting at Cincinnati Children's was that allowed and enabled and sort of seeded this kind of thing. But one of the themes we thought we might all talk a little bit about is what makes these things possible? What makes the inclusion possible? Is it a physician like yourself with this idea who has the freedom um, to move things along? Uh, is it a committee? Uh, what, what types of things do we need uh, to actually get these experimental and very novel things that others can learn from off the ground? And maybe I'll start with you, and I'm curious what Libby and Christian have to say as well. Okay. Um, the first thing I, I want to do is to acknowledge uh, that this work that I'm showing is actually the result of a very novel uh, way of funding research that NIH, uh, through their um, uh, roadmap program, to, uh, established what's called the high-risk, high-reward portfolio, um, a very unusual grant program in which investigators could propose uh, pretty way out ideas and get enough funding and time and freedom to take on things uh, which, uh, for which we didn't have uh, preliminary data. So if it weren't for the NIH TR01 program, uh, the team of people who are working on this just would not have uh, had the space to uh, imagine a, a different way of, of doing work. And what it allowed us to do, actually, was to invite um, a, a very uh, unusual group of people to work together uh, in uh, designing uh, a, a new way of what we hoped would be uh, some novel ways of delivering healthcare. So we recruited a team of uh, people that included patients and parents, uh, um, uh, ethnographers and designers. Uh, we actually um, uh, uh, sociologists, uh, computer scientists. It's a, a very diverse group of uh, uh, people who spent about a year looking for ideas and thinking about ideas that uh, might uh, offer um, new ways of doing things. W one of the things that we learned during that first year is uh, 
a lot about the skills and capacity that everybody in the system has to make a difference. One of our collaborators is uh, uh, somebody by the name of Jesse Dillon. He's a filmmaker. He's Bob Dillon's son. He has a son who was diagnosed as having Crohn's disease, and he found us and started making films uh, for the network to help communicate what he could do, which is help people take very complicated stories told by guys like me who tend to have pocket protectors and make them understandable to uh, a bigger group of people. Um, So that's the kind of uh, setting that made it take place. Partly being aware of what's what's in your midst and tapping into it. Libby, what do you think as somebody who's been trying to, at some level, uh, build the infrastructure and kind of build, start to build these vehicles um, uh, in your capacity as an advisor? Um, does that help with inclusion? I think it does. I think, um, you know, coming up with a definition of what is an advisor and really kind of solidifying that role went a long way to helping um, patient family advisors to see the value of what they could contribute. Um, I think that preparation piece is really, really important. Um, It's, and you kind of alluded to it um, with this uh, research team at, at CHLA, We've spent the first part of time just getting to know each other and getting to know each other's, one another's um, roles and, and what each discipline is about. And I think in terms of engaging patients and families in your work, you need to take that first step because um, it's not always clear. And sometimes we have difficulty connecting, and I worry that um, we'll stop trying because... The, the healthcare professionals will perceive my intimidation or my lack of um, understanding of my role as an indifference to it. And so I think that to lay that foundation so that everybody sort of understands what they're bringing to the table is really an, an important first step. Mm-hmm. Christian, your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think uh, you're learning about yeah. uh, not just in Sweden but in yeah. this country too yeah, and all yeah. your travels. Yeah. For me, as both as a patient and as a nurse today, I, I can see that we have to start listening to the patients and, and you know, uh, build this partnership with the patient. Because if we are not doing, oh, oh. it's okay. Yeah, uh, I think that's the key. That's the first thing we have to do to to begin listen to the patient because otherwise we are not going to connect to them and also meet the patient on based on their knowledge base because every patient has its life experience and also uh, work experience and other skills so the healthcare system can use that kind of thing and learn from it and that's the first thing I, I think we should work on but I also ha- have to highlight this culture problem we have in, in healthcare system because uh, it's like it's like a big barrier when you are coming out there because we are we are not I, I, I see I can see that as a nurse today too that we are working in a strange culture we have to flatten it out, and we have to begin to discuss the hierarchies and uh, the culture problem in healthcare. Yeah. Um, what about the way in which, um, um, in some ways, Peter has this interesting grant or your team that, in some ways, is encouraging almost all some very novel and things outside the box. 
Christian on your own volition and determination. You went outside the box and you found a nurse to partner with. And then there is a disruptive innovation and the story moves on from there. How do you think, or how so far, has the improvement community responded to something that came from that direction as opposed to something that was designed in yeah. some other fashion? Are they willing to get on board yeah. and help you with the evidence base yeah. and the spread? Uh, when they saw that this was a, a successful um, um, case, so to speak, um, they started getting interested in what we were, were doing back there. And today we're working together with uh, researchers, um, we're working together with um, uh, um, the professionals, the nurses, the doctors, and we also work together with the politicians and uh, also um, uh, the health the, the industry, for example, uh, people who are uh, making the machines for for uh, the dialysis machines. So, so I think when you when you look at the benefits of it, uh, people are really interested in getting on board. Yeah. You were just recently in Texas. Would you say the receptivity was good? Yeah. yeah. Really, really. Okay. So we'll be hearing more about this. Perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, that's interesting. Um, I'm going to just I'm just going to bounce around here, and I hope with your questions and comments, you'll help um, sort of build on some of these ideas here. Um, in addition to inclusion, what about the issues themselves? Um, we were hearing again, Kathleen, about the priorities, um, and in many ways, you're hearing stories that emerge kind of naturally from circumstances here um, for for Libby and Christian, and then the kind of work that Peter uh, does. Um, what about the issues and the priorities? Libby, what do you think uh, as you're in this capacity? You got engaged in this out of a particular family situation. As you look and see, are there issues that are missing that are just not on the radar screen um, that the improvement community might be thinking more about or could? I, I do. I think that there's um, opportunity for patients and families to inform the agenda and the priorities um, for research moving forward. It, it's it's interesting in that second story of the um, research co-designed, you know, we've, we've done so much of that informally. And, and I remember um, as well when the boys were little, all three of them were on nebulizers. And so I wanted, like anything, for somebody to develop a three-way tubing so we could do nebulizers one and everybody would get all their medicine that they needed. Right? I know it sounds crazy, but how much less time and how much of an impact is that having on the patient and family? You know, how much more time can we go to the park or do whatever it might be that's important to people's lives and well-being? And so I think given the opportunity, we could even maybe point to some priorities that haven't been identified yet that would really immediately impact the well-being of folks living with chronic illness. So. Any thoughts, Peter, on that? I, I, I just, uh, I guess the only thing I would add is that I, I am never cease to be uh, amazed at how many great ideas are coming from the families who are participating, stuff that the doctors are, just don't even think about. Um, so having 
starting to have systems uh, for people to make those kinds of contributions and a, and a system that's open to the contributions, I think will just perpetuate it and hopefully it'll snowball and really move things along fast. One interesting thing to think about um, at a symposium such as this uh, in, and including with the poster boards might be what if we knew a kind of uh, parallel story that ran alongside how did patients and families influence the work along the way um, such that as even whether, whether it was explicitly part of the design or not, um, I think part of the issue um, maybe that's going on also, it's a kind of hidden story sometimes. Um, what you're learning um, as you're going about improvement work. Um, so uh, I guess another issue I'd like to ask about, uh, in addition to priorities and issues, uh, Gareth at some level wanted to do this panel with a hypothesis, and you can, of course, speak for yourself. I would never attempt to speak for Gareth but, or in his accent, but um, um, about whether the engagement with patients and families in greater collaboration, whether it would accelerate things, move things along faster, uh, begin to make real the needs and some of the urgencies without sacrificing the research or the science or the evidence. Uh, that's a question, of course, uh, for the crowd today, but um, I'm curious what our panelists uh, think about the pace. Um, Gareth, feel free to weigh in if you'd like. Uh, a pace of, of change and whether uh, there is some need to accelerate things. Um, Peter, you want to start with that? Um, I, <laughs> the real, we're all here today because of the tremendous need to make things go faster. Uh, I, I, I think one, we, we tend to focus much of the improvement work that we're doing, which is extremely imp important, is focused on redesigning clinical delivery systems. I think there's another challenge that's about redesigning learning systems so that uh, the research and clinical improvement uh, are more closely integrated uh, and we can harvest some of this uh, energy that exists um, to um, to move things along faster. In the C3N project, we're, we have we have about uh, 15 uh, paid FTEs total on the project. There are about 150 collaborators around the world making contributions, almost all of whom are volunteering their time. So if there's that kind of passion, um, we ought to try to find ways of harnessing it. I would absolutely echo that. I, I think patients and families have a tremendous amount of natural passion for this work and, and to improve, um, you know, our circumstances. How do we, how do we regrow lung function? Because that that'd be really good for us. So I think there, if we can set up some structures and some pathways for us to um, to bring that sense of urgency to the work, I think it would expedite. The other thing that I think um, makes it a more efficient process is a lot of the improvement work maybe done 10 years ago started to sort of say, okay, we're going to get patient family input, so we're going to design a new clinic and then we're going to take it to them and get feedback. How much more efficient to include patients and families upstream at the design point and then not go back and revision and revision and revision, how much more expedient would it get that information out there? So, uh, Christian, what are your thoughts about the, the pace of change? I, I can just say that uh, in, in this unit in Sweden, in-center self-care unit, uh, we can see that if you involve the patients, things go faster, real faster, because 
because they can't wait. They they want to do it now, and and we are a bunch of projects that are going on all the time together with the staffs and the patients, and the outcome is really really good. Thank you all. Well, it's uh, your turn now. We'd love to know what I see somebody's already uh, uh, waiting. Um, uh, we're going to use the microphones. I think I see the, yeah, either side here. So if you don't mind, um, just forming a small line and, and getting in line. And uh, questions for anyone, and we'll, we'll try to get to as many as we can before the hour is up. Ma'am, did you want to start? Oh, sorry. Okay. okay. Uh, Good afternoon. I'm Dolly Bellhouse. I'm from the Allegheny Health Network in Pittsburgh. And uh, a couple things have impressed me just being here till now for this day. And And I always like to think about improvement in the course of our work. And so somebody said at the poster session, I think it was about the patient experience in the acute care setting, it matters how you ask questions, right? Instead of a provider saying, what questions do you have to the patient, what concerns you most, and how they elicited different responses. I think you, sir, about advocating for your own care. And so I'm interested in your thoughts about ways that we can, we have these resources of patients that we contact every day. And we want to provide them care, whether it be in a clinic setting, in the physician office, in therapy, in the acute care setting, in a skilled facility. But but are there just quick, innovative ways we can begin to learn more about how to involve the patients? And as, as you were saying, Libby, about doing things that are relevant to them. Um, just a way to think about it. So, you know, in, the, in this whole simple, easy, quick, cheap kind of mindset, we have the resource, we're touching the resource, this huge resource every day. So. Thank you. Any thoughts on that? I mean, part of it, it sounds like they're, we're hearing about models and examples, and then there's always that stage and step of beginning to harness the learning to see, well, what works? What are the processes that work for this level of engagement and also patients and families kind of setting more of their own priorities? Um, I don't know. Libby? Um, So one of the strategies we offer clinicians in particular, but could also be um, stretched to the research community, is to ask open-ended questions instead of closed-ended questions. And I think the best question that you can ask is tell me what a typical day in your life is like. You're going to get the person's priorities. You're going to get what's really important to them and what they're really worried about. Um, So I think when you open up the conversation to go outside the bounds, then you really get much richer information. Um, Stephen was involved in a, in a, a traumatic accident his freshman year in college, and when I got to the hospital, um, the trauma surgeon met me at the door with a cup of coffee and said, come in, Stephen's stable right now, come in and tell me everything about Stephen and what mitochondrial disease means to him. How much information did he get? He took me from chaos to, okay, I've got a job here to do and I need to engage. So I think open-ended questions is a strategy you could definitely try. Thanks, Libby. Christian? Just give you an example of how important this communication is. It's it's like when you have a dialysis patient on, on the bed and you have the machine just beside and the patient are coming in and for the uh, mo- everywhere uh, on on lots of uh, dialysis units patients coming in put their arm there 
and people are doing what they're doing. They are tapping on the machine and they don't communicate with the patient. But what you actually are doing when you're tapping on the machine and adjust it is like you're doing things in the body on the patient, but you don't communicate. How? How can you uh, improve the quality for the patient if you don't communicate when you're doing things in the body for the patient but outside, so to speak? So start communicating with the patient. So I guess as I'm hearing these things, I'm sort of um, using the lens of this panel today, and I'm thinking, well, that would be an interesting uh, improvement project or something. Uh, the, the person who's carefully trying to do a lot of inputs and do that carefully and focusing a lot on the precision needed there, as well as, and we're, there's an awful lot of this in our lives right now, including in healthcare, being able to relate to you as as the person uh, for whom that, that this is all for. So these are interesting ideas. Yes. Uh, Paulo from Brazil, and I'm interested to hear, because I'm a physician, and you're trying to say this is our knowledge. We know we know what is better for the patient, not the patient, not the patient. So my question is. Uh, how we can uh, educate the caregivers to, for them to feel confident that the patient can do it, the patient can take care of the course of the actions in, in taking care of himself? Um, interesting. Peter? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. How about sp- speak for all your colleagues <laughs> who feel that they have all the answers? <laughs> how, how do you break that down a little bit, or how do folks get I mean, used to it? <laughs> Uh, I, you know, I think we just have to be open to the idea that uh, we have a lot to learn. Uh, uh, one of the things that we're observing is that uh, uh, when we when we give when we create tools that enable physicians and, and patients to actually get more granular data about what their experience of illness is, everybody starts learning a whole lot more because we're all overlooking. Uh, overlooking uh, important changes in experience of uh, living with a disease that um, we didn't even know about. So when patients come in to see us, we ask how they're doing. They remember what happened the last three days, but they may have forgotten what happened the last six weeks. And now that we're starting to create tools that make the last six weeks of experience visible to everyone and have with time to reflect on it, the whole conversation starts to change. Thank you very much for that. Yes, sir. Yes, my name is Jeff Lewis. I'm from Nationwide Children's Hospital. I actually um, work with Wallace Crandall, uh, and his group is a part of the collaborative. Um, One of the things we do to involve our patients and families, and I just wanted to share this, is we actually once a month we have um, families that actually come to our QI working group, and they routinely give us input on their experience. Um, at our QI meeting, like, gosh, we're redesigning a patient handbook. We get their input before we roll that new patient handbook out. Or, gosh, when my child was, you know, new in their diagnosis, I wish we would have known more about this. And when they're getting ready to go to college, we wish we would have had more of this type of information. So that as new patients come, we're able to make changes in our processes to improve the experience. 
So just wanted to make that comment. Thank you very much. Okay. Go ahead, Libby. I just wanted to add to that. That's exactly, um, you know, how we get healthcare to open the conversation and embrace the reciprocity that can be established between patients and families in healthcare. And it's by setting that stage, I don't know where the other gentleman went, but it's by setting that kind of a collaborative stage that we will engage patients and families that they will then become educated. Any more questions or comments at all? Anyone else out there? Yes? Yes, uh, my name is Duncan Newhauser. I was interested in comments about the website patientslikeme.com and the capacity they have for patients to collect their information. People I talk to say it's a very good idea, except that the company owns the data. And I think we should be involved in having patients collect their own data and own their own data on that. And that would be a major change from that paradigm. And I was just inviting comments. Yes, any, any, uh, anyone uh, aware of patients like me? Or um, I haven't kept up with it in recent years. Uh, Christian at all? I'm a member there. So. Oh, you yes. uh-huh. um, Thoughts about it at all, about sort of what its value is, do you feel? Yeah, I think that's the patients like me, it's, it's, it's for the future patient. You're going to see lots of those networks in the future. And patients are sharing stories and they are sharing things that works for them. So I think that's only in the beginning now. And, and I think it's going to improve the healthcare for the patient in the future by sharing uh, stories with each other. So. One, one way that we're starting to talk about... Uh, 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 use of data um, is to change the word uh, giving your data to a, for a research study to investing your data in a research study to emphasize Libby's point of reciprocity. Um, patients should expect to get something back for the research. Um, as we think about the degree to which data are shared, uh, we can take some lessons from other parts of the Internet about transparency, about things that are possible now within the realm of possibility. For example, it's not beyond the realm of possibility that patients could get an email every time a researcher decides to use their data, could have a picture of the researcher, what the study question was, um, so that you know who's using your data, what it's for, um, and, uh, uh, and what the results are. So... We just have to think about this in a more, from the perspective of reciprocity and transparency. Thank you. Ma'am, did you have a question? Yes. Lisa Rubenstein, I guess a question and comment. Um, We're trying to make patients' involvement in quality councils routine across about 20 clinics. And just to... um, get any advice you have and make the comment that it's not so easy under routine care circumstances. It takes time. First thing we had issues with was finding people. It's a commitment on the part of a patient to do this. And if you want to make it routine, you know, to find the networks to get people to come. Then training. To train people, we want them to really be involved in the design of primary care. 
So to get them to feel empowered, to understand the nuts and bolts of some of the design issues, you know, it takes a little while. And finally, the other thing that's come up is um, privacy protection issues. Because, um, and I think we've, I think we've managed to deal with this one, but I think it's something to keep in mind. Whoever wants to try to apply this, um, because we had one complaint of someone who said, "Well, why does this patient have any access to my information?" even though it was part of a quality improvement thing. So I just feel like it's very exciting, but we're also kind of at the beginning of figuring out how to make it routine. Well, you, you said it very well. I, as I was saying at the beginning, a, a, com- a conference unto itself on a whole host of issues, and I think you just ticked off um, several. Um, maybe as we wrap up, I will just ask our panelists for any final remarks, and if you have any reflections on um, the question and comments. Uh, one thing that strikes me about um, how you were describing kind of the ambitions, um, it made me think, well, are there ways to make maybe start smaller and more nimble um, and in, in settings in which um, maybe the learning curve isn't so steep um, for the, the recruitment and the training, et cetera. Peter, obviously, you've got a kind of novel, almost like a hothouse of uh, folks and, you know, patient uh, patients who are sort of testing things um, perhaps with support but also on their own, and maybe that's a model that needs to be thought of as well um, as we go forward. But any comments on that and maybe some final remarks? Peter, why don't we start with you? Okay, sorry. Um, Just the one final uh, thought. Uh, When in these crowdsourced collective communities, uh, most people, like most of us, uh, are users of Wikipedia. We're not editors. When we're looking for patients who want to participate with us, we're looking for the 1% to 5% of people who have enough passion around a particular issue that they want to make a difference. So I think to some extent we need to, op- we need to be thinking about and how to, who is likely to emerge. Not all of us want to be the president of the PTA. Some of us are happy, and most of us, like me, we're happy to drive the carpool or... Uh, occasionally bake some cookies. Um, And it's only a small percentage of people who really are passionate. Those are the ones that are are the ones we should be looking for when we want to get people engaged. Thanks, Peter. Libby? Um, I think the organization, whichever it is, whether it's your clinic or your hospital or your, your research team, needs to be really clear on what they're wanting to get out of patient engagement and engaging patients. And then once you're really clear about that and setting some expectations around it, I think you move forward with recruitment at that point and cast a really wide net so that through an application process or an interview process or both, um, you identify that 1% to 5% that wants to really partner with you and has the availability to do that. And, you know, because a lot of times we ask, oh, do you want to get involved in this? Yes, I'd love to because my heart is in it, but I don't have that kind of time. So I think if you go through those steps, um, you'll end up with folks that are are both passionate and available um, to you. And and it's just really important as I get involved in Improvement Mart, I I need to be really clear about what your expectations are of me. And so you need to be clear of that. And and I think that sort of helps you get to um, that mass of, of people that you need. 
Absolutely. Christian. I think for a very long time the, the, the healthcare system have, have reached out to the patients and they have talked about their care plans, they have done a lot of work for the patient, but it has been pretty much for the healthcare system itself, doing a care plan checklist and stuff like that. They have to think like they have to reach into the patient and begin talk about deeper learning for the patient and then the rest are going to be there, I think so. So, so. so start look at the patient and its abilities and opportunities and we, we're going to succeed, I believe. Yeah. Okay. All right. On that note, I want to thank uh, Peter Margolis, Libby Hoy, and Christian Farman uh, for a really wonderful... They'll be around if you have further questions, and thank you all. It was uh, wonderful to be able to participate in this. Thanks a lot. And I'm also going to thank Madge for, uh, for hosting that all for us. Thank you. You've just been listening to a special edition WIHI podcast recorded live at the 19th Annual Scientific Symposium on Improving the Quality and Value of Healthcare. This was held on December 9th in Orlando, Florida, alongside IHI's 25th Annual National Forum on Quality Improvement in Healthcare. For more information about this podcast and related resources, check out the WIHI archive page on IHI.org. The WIHI homepage lists all upcoming programs. The people who help make WIHI possible are John Gothier, Alan Olison, Vicki Minden, Jameson Case, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Matt Morse, Mike Sweeney, and Jesse McCall. It's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care most of all. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day. Good day.